Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. So, um, we have, if you remember um, contextually, um, we have just moved from Jesus has been teaching uh, during the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, um, and he has been um, in the temple. Uh, we've been through the, uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery. We've already been through um, with him declaring he's the light of the world. We've already been through doing this wild thing where he jumps in the middle of the water while they're pouring the water and wine into uh, the ceremonial um, stream and declaring that anyone who's thirsty can come to him. And we bring ourselves now to uh, one of the most famous healing stories in all of the Gospels. And um, uh, this story is the story of the man born blind. Um, and there are a few things that are really, really interesting about this story, and I say first, um, do you ever just have those feelings um, that there's something you're going to deal with that's different? It's just going to be a different story. It's kind of like it's there. Um, and so I, I'm going to be completely transparent today. Um, this is intimidating for me because I don't know that I want to share this story. So the first thing I would like to ask is, as you as we go through this text, if you need to write it down, if you need to use your phone, if you need to um, get a pen and paper, um, or even use those nice little handy-dandy 
uh, offering slips um, as, a, as a note-taking device or if you're good enough to just remember. But um, the best way to move through this is to think of these things as we go, knowing that at the end we're going to have a table of questions, okay? Um, <coughs> so um, I would like to encourage you as we think through this story to pay attention to what stands out. The second thing I would like to ask as we move through this story is, and I know this is the part that's going to seem strange, but I would like you to set aside our fascination with the miracle itself. So I would like to ask, just for the purpose of this message, just for this time, if we can set aside our fascination with the miracle itself. That's tough. Um, but I think it can allow us to see something deeper and more mysterious um, uh, that's actually potentially happening in the story. So, Jesus, this is John chapter 9, verse 1. And as he was passing along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples questioned him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents have sinned, but rather that the works of God might be made manifest in him. It is necessary for us to perform the works of the one who has sent me while it is day. So I, I, I kind of, in the slides, kind of cut off in the transition, but the sentence is, it's necessary to perform these works while the light is day. The night comes when no one can work. While I am in the cosmos, I am the light of the cosmos. Now, think for just a moment about what Jesus just got done saying and doing. If the light bulbs aren't going on, then I probably didn't teach it well. He just left saying, I'm the light of the world. He just left the temple where after the seven days of feasting, they light the menorah. They lit a seven-story tall candle. Okay? They didn't have one of those cool Casterville uh, lits like he uses to do banners, uh, um, you know, three or four stories up, where he can scissor lift and give himself up. They're climbing a seven-story ladder to light this incredible candle. And, and at the, while this is happening behind him, that they said that all of Jerusalem was like a city on a hill that could not be hidden. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. So he's still, we have to remember this is still in context. This is a conversation that's ongoing. So if, if Jesus has just said, I'm the light of the world, then remember the whole gospel is about liberation. The gospel is about the thing that made this God, Yahweh, unique is that he liberated oppressed people. He delivered people from captivity. And so what happens is in the midst of this, Jesus says, I'm the light. What was the light that that feast was celebrating? Anybody remember? In the Exodus, what led them through the wilderness? A pillar of fire. And that pillar of fire, Jewish, uh, the Jewish belief was that fire was what lit the altar in the tabernacle of Moses. It was in their job to keep it going. That's
That's why they didn't know where she was spraying fire. Because the idea was that the fire of God. So Jesus stands up because that feast is celebrating their movement from bondage into freedom. Delivery from captivity. And Jesus stands up and says, oh yeah, you know that pillar that you're commemorating, celebrating that liberation that you're speaking of? I'm that. So they're still jarred by this. Like, they're going, whoa, this rabbi guy that we're following, he's pretty cool, but now he's saying he was a pillar of fire that we're going to smite? Like the quintessential icon, Jesus says, I'm that. He's already said anybody that's thirsty, come and drink, which is already celebrating that he was the rock that Moses smote and the waters came out of. So do you see what he's doing? He's really messing with people intentionally. He's, it would be like me saying, I am the Declaration of Independence. I am the Statue of Liberty. Like these icons that are deeply important historically, not just spiritually. I am the White House. You can see where that would be deeply like, wait, what? So, Jesus says, I am the light of the cosmos. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay from the filth, dirt, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means we're interpreting sent forth. So he went and washed and came back to them. So, a couple things about this um, as we move into the context. So the first thing to recognize is in the story, did anybody notice that verse 1 of chapter 9 starts with Jesus walking? And while he was walking, he came upon a man that was born blind. Anytime you start a story where a movement is already happening, the best thing to do is to see what's been going on. Have you seen that one? Right? And so the best thing to do is go, wait a minute, what was just happening previous to this? Then we'll have an idea. Interestingly enough in the story, you can tell that we've joined the story with movement. And if you look back at the latter part of chapter 8, the last few verses, we remember that Jesus came to the climax of the scene at the Feast of Tabernacles. At the climax of the scene of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Everybody is already ticked off. He's standing, if you remember, at the um, at the table where they changed money in the tabernacle. Remember, he had already moved. Uh, he had moved from the. He was moving closer to the inner court, so he's moving to the place now of complete exclusivity. They said that he would have been standing next to a sign that said, "If you are not with Jewish blood and go past this sign, you could. Uh, your death is your fault." come to worship, you kneel down and get decapitated. But that, so Jesus is speaking in that realm. And if you remember, the last message we did is that you have not many fathers. Who is your father? And remember that he's referencing that if your father was actually Abraham, then you would have been recognizing that you are to be blessed so that everyone can be blessed. But your father, he said, is Satan. And he defined who Satan was. The accuser and the one who categorizes. If you didn't hear that, go reference the last teaching. But but literally the Latin word for shatan means to categorize, to label people. 
so we are at our most panicked when we are labeling people or accusing them. That's Satan by literal definition. So Jesus has just told the religious leaders at the high seat of the temple, you are children of Satan. They are not really fans of this statement. And so in the midst of this context, at this climax, Jesus, it says, has to flee from their midst. Now, there's all kinds of cool questions about if it was miraculous, like if he just somehow, like, you know, disappeared or if he went camo. Um, I don't really know how that works. Um, but the idea being that somehow Jesus just, like, slipped out of their midst. So the context we started with is Jesus is walking. Guys, Jesus is on the run. <laughs> right? Literally, Jesus is on the run. He has just told the high priest of Israel that you are a child of Satan. They picked up stones to stone him, and he ran out of the temple. This is how we find him. Hopefully the irony is not lost on us that Jesus has just dealt with them and they drop. Do you realize that it's very likely, and this is a whole nother message, it's kind of a broken record. But the idea is that it's very likely that they that uh, people would have picked up the stones that were just dropped from the stoning of the woman brought in adultery to then throw at Jesus. When you defend the oppressed, the innocent, and the poor, don't be surprised when people drop stones on you. When you stand on behalf of inclusivity, don't be surprised when they scapegoat you and turn their stones Jesus is standing there and he says, you're a, an accuser. You are a one who categorizes people. And they pick up the very stones likely that they had just dropped from getting ready to stone the woman caught in the act of adultery. And they turn their weapons on Jesus. And Jesus takes off running. So we find Jesus first and foremost is that he's walking from them. In a, fir a few short verses, he jumps into the stream of holy water, declares himself the water of life. He calls out the religious leaders by writing their names in the dirt. He identifies himself as the real light of the world, liberating people from darkness, and says that the religious leaders of Israel are children of Satan. Do we wonder why he's running? Jesus is literally on the run. And Jesus says to them, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I'm, 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 I, I need to read, I need to throw this verse out there because if we don't get this, we absolutely will not understand what's happening in chapter 9 when he heals the blind man. Jesus, the last thing we get from him before he takes off running is Jesus says to them, very truly I tell you, because they've just said, we are children of our father Abraham. And he says, very tr truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw him, and Jesus hid himself and ran out of the temple. Does anybody think, does anything stand out besides the bad grammar? Before Abraham was, I am. 
stand out about them? What is the name that Yahweh gave to Moses when he told him to go liberate all of Israel from captivity? And Moses says, you should all say his tent name. I am. So we need to unpack what actually caused the final straw for the running events here. Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. The first thing to mention here is that Jesus was not the first one to say this. And Jesus also was not the first Messiah, the first one that came and said he was the Messiah to liberate Israel. There had been many other Messiahs, many leading up to Jesus who had made this claim. In fact, just in the research that I did, I found 10 to 12 other people who claimed to be the Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy or the Jewish scriptures leading up to Jesus in the two centuries before Jesus, there were 10. And they only documented the ones who did miraculous things. They only documented the people that made an impact. So the idea of this is the same reason that you can't remember who was drafted um, uh, number one in the year that Peyton Manning was drafted. You don't remember the other people that didn't do anything. You don't remember that kind of stuff. It doesn't stand out in history. Well, that's kind of how it was. So they would write these people down. Jesus comes and says something different. And the first thing we have to understand is the I am statement. Literally, the way that the rabbis translate this, so you can't say I am who I am, which is just gibberish in our English language. Does that even make sense? Who am I? Translations that Jewish scholars actually say that the better translation is, I will be whatever I will be. Who are you? I will be whatever I will be. Do you see what's happening here? So Jesus in this quotes this and says, I am. And what we have to understand is in the Exodus story, Exodus chapter 3, there's a whole thing that's happening here where God says, I will be what I will be. And Jesus actually then says, before Abraham was, I will be. And so what he does is he, he speaks and references this because God was trying to communicate that he was not tied to a name. God was actually saying, when Abraham said, what is your name? God says, my name doesn't matter. Because I will demonstrate myself however I choose to demonstrate myself. And I am found in the demonstration of who I am, not in the identification or the box you put me in. So what God says here is this unique thing where God seems to actually want us to tie divinity to the, the, the demonstration, the presence of the divinity, not the name or the identity of the divinity. And so this is why in Judaism, God's statement to Moses became the unspeakable and unnameable God. You do realize that that's why in the Bible, when you see in the Old Testament, the, the good translation is actually it's Y-D-W-Y, Yahweh. And so they don't spell it out. A, a, a practicing Jew today still will not say the word Yahweh. 
because it's 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 the name that they want to speak. It's the unspeakable name. I will be what I will be. And and the reason is not that there is an essence of holiness to it, of course. But the idea is not just that the name is too holy to speak. The idea is that you can't encapsulate it. They say that the, the reason they chose those letters to put it in the Bible is because they chose something that had no vowels. Because a word with no vowels cannot be pronounced. And more specifically, a word with no vowels, uh, when, if, when pronouncing a word with no vowels, you can't do it without uh, not putting your lips together. So the idea is you cannot close your mouth down in the name of God. You, cannot, you can't encapsulate it. We can't block it. We can't stop it. So the idea is it's breath and breath alone. So he's saying, I'm this thing. And we must practice profound humility in regard to God who gives us not a name, but what God gives us is pure presence. God gives us pure presence, not to think, okay, I have it figured out, but to invite us into experience and presence. So now back to this experience with the blind man. So what Jesus does next is Jesus um, seems to only, yeah, Jesus seems to only exclude exclusion. The only thing that Jesus excluded was exclusion itself. So Jesus comes to the blind man. He's walking down the road. He's just got done saying this really weird thing about needing exclusion because he's saying, I am the God that there's, I just will be what I will be. I'm going to demonstrate presence in any way possible and in every way possible. I'm found in the midst of matter itself. And so the only people that Jesus seemed to exclude were precisely those that refused to know they were ordinary people just like everybody else. The only people Jesus excluded were the excluders. So Jesus, when he comes to this man, there's this loaded phrase when they see this man, and all of a sudden everybody around them starts asking questions about who's this. Do you see what happens here? This man is not a person. This man is an object of theological debate. When they see this man, they, 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 they recognize his, this, this idea, this, this malady that he has, and use a loaded phrase. They recognize depravity from birth. And this man who shows what they could deem physical evidence of, of issue. They saw a theological topic of discussion. What stood before them was a philosophical conundrum of generational sin. And what they wanted to know was, how does it work? So they didn't even ask Jesus about the man. They just wanted to talk philosophic, philosophically about how sin works. Can you see the lack of empathy? The man is sitting there blind, and they want to talk about a theological, philosophical implications of generational sin? Have we done that to God? 
Somebody is hiding. Somebody is demonstrating um, some type of mental illness, and we're talking about it biting, whether they think it's on their Ouija board.
Um, so what this causes is people then begin to imagine that this man being born blind and suffering all this time, so 20 years later Jesus can show up at the appointed time and heal him in front of other people to show how powerful God is. So it's preordained that this man live in blindness. Really? So who gets the short straw in that? Like is somebody up at the throne before creation and it's like, well, sorry about your luck. But Louis, you got to spend the first three years, 30 years blind so that Jesus can show how he's really God. Seriously? So when you look at this, this Greek word is actually a transitional word. It's used to bring one idea to the more central idea. So it can actually be translated nevertheless. Not so that. This man was born blind, nevertheless, he is now going to be healed so that God can demonstrate his goodness. Not this man was born blind, so that God can demonstrate his goodness. You see how different that is? That's huge. So this word is not it's not so that, it's nevertheless. So it's the phrase would not be, this man was born blind so that God could show his healing power. This man was born blind, nevertheless, God is going to demonstrate his healing power. also translate this word moreover, which has the same effect. This happened. Moreover, God's healing power has come. So it's it's actually trying to move to the right central idea of what's supposed to be happening. And so moreover transitions the disciples from one topic, which is debating about the man's sin, to the more central topic. God wants to heal. He's moving people from our obsession with sin and our obsession with the problem and our obsession with guilt and condemnation to the fact that God doesn't care about that. He just wants to heal. He just wants to restore. He just wants to make whole. So the idea is Jesus, in the midst of this, moves them to the more central topic without throwing Jesus under the bus as some diabolical anti-humanitarian idea that comes along and just, sorry about your luck, good thing Jesus found here today. Do you see the deep theological correction here? Because questions like, why did God take our child? Why was this person born with this deformity? Why did God not hear my prayer and heal this person? Are building upon a premise that Jesus tried to correct here. That's the big change. From Rather than seeing this man as a lab rat, a demonstration, an exhibit of what God did and God put this in place and this guy got the short end of that stick. But thank God, you shouldn't be too upset about the fact that you spent 30 years blind so that God could prove his point. Because you're, well, what are you complaining about? You can see now, can't you? Can't we do that? How many times do we deal with people who, who um, didn't have the same?
rights before. And we were, our answers were, we don't know what you're complaining, you got, you got rights now at least, right? Seriously? That's not the way this is supposed to work. So when we look at this, the other thing that I find fascinating is that Jesus comes along and takes this dirt and, and, and spits on it and makes mud. So, um, and I apologize, I can't get it to my brother back in time. So we're going to work our way through this um, together. So the first thing to understand, um, gosh, I feel like that's not my time. so that we can work through this quickly. So the thing he does is he moves this and changes it from the idea of this man sick to this man that wants to be healed. Can I have some mud? You guys can bear through me and imagine that I'm Rick Joyner for a few moments as you were preaching from my laptop. So when you look at this, uh, the thing that I find to be very, very interesting is that Jesus then takes mud, which is at least equally interesting in this story. This is the only instance that Jesus uses mud to heal somebody from blindness. And so Jesus heals and shows love. He spins the world right side up, and he does it using mud. Maybe he uses mud to show us it doesn't take something entirely otherworldly to do the work of God. Maybe he uses mud as a symbolic subliminal jab at our fear and preoccupation with cleanliness. Our preoccupation with purity. He uses dirt to heal. We think that our prayers aren't heard because of our lack of purity or the person's lack of purity. Jesus makes dirt to heal. Maybe he just uses it just because mud feels really good with the demon stuff. is what technically dirt mixed with a little spit that he used and puts all over the man's face. Can you imagine how weird this would have been? I hope that in the book of John we finally get the idea that Jesus is theatrical. Like Jesus is into the weird stuff in the way of the Jewish prophets. So what he does is he comes along and does this, and if possible, for the remainder of the message, I like to think of this man, the blind man, as an archetype for humanity. So I'm going to shift a little bit. But I like to think of this man not as just a blind person, but as an archetype symbolically that John is using to teach us a lesson. You see, sometimes we get so focused on the literal surface elements that we miss the deeper meaning, in that these stories become almost like Greek mythology rather than deep spiritual mystery leading us into a greater awareness of God's restoring work in creation. We mythologize these things so much that then we're back there worrying about this rather than seeing what is it trying to teach us. This man serves as an archetype for all of humanity and the blindness that we have. You see, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's inviting us into a different way 
receive Jesus' first call is change the way you see things. Repent. That literally means change the way you see. So Jesus' first call is that, dealing with blindness, the very first thing. Change the way you see because the kingdom is already here. And if I could say anything to the church at large today, it would be change the way you see the kingdom of heaven is here. And if the kingdom of heaven is here, then global warming matters. And if the kingdom of heaven is here, then homelessness matters. And if the kingdom of heaven is here, then people who don't have food matter. And if the kingdom of heaven is here, then babies in cages matter. And if the kingdom of heaven is here, then gun violence matters. So Jesus is saying, change the way you see. He's calling for a paradigm shift. He's calling us into a way that is approaching ultimate reality that is ever evolving and expanding to see the beauty of God's great love and design. So this here is a representation of all of us who in some way or another have been handed blindedness or blind spots. Blind spots. You know what those are in your car, right? You're driving down 40 and you get ready to get over in your lane and then somebody decides to wave at you with their, their longest finger elevated. Because you've just got ready to run them off the road because they were in your blind spot. So they're in your blind spot. You can't see them. Is it your fault that you couldn't see them? Did, did, Did anything, I mean, at the end of the day, it's not, you just couldn't see it. You couldn't help that you couldn't see. Were you being, uh, were you maybe, um, I mean, I guess you could argue that you weren't paying attention, but to some degree, the mirror failed you. that we only see what we see because that's how we've been told to see. Those are our blind spots. See, this conversation starts with the blindness inherited generationally from his family. The first thing Jesus does is make it clear that you are not bound by your family's blind spots. See, the first thing he does is he severs the idea of generational issues. He severs the idea that you are not bound by your family's blind spots. You are not bound by your cultural blind spots. In some ways, this story can run parallel to the Nicodemus story. It's about changing the way you see things. But the difference here is it's a much bigger, excuse me, it is much bigger than the paradigm of legalism, which is primarily the Nicodemus conversation. But it's showing us the connection to matter all around us. And when I say matter, I mean physicality all around us. Notice Jesus here uses the tangible to demonstrate healing. Maybe it is to show us that God is in the dirt and God is in our being. And if you think about why did he use spit, well, spit contains your DNA. Who you are is in your spit. So is, he, is it possible that he's reconnecting us to the earth? Adam was not the name of the first. It literally means earth being, dirt being. Adam was not his name. Adam was how we were created. Adame means from the earth. So he's reconnecting things and he's showing us that the 
there's something deeper happening around us. Maybe it's showing us the connection once again to the garden where we were all molded and shaped from the earth. Maybe it's to show that Adam and what happened in the fall of Adam can't separate us from the fact that all of creation is groaning and crying out for the manifestation of what God has planned. So, you see, in this, Jesus is saying, if we allow it, the earth itself, life itself, creation around us should expose and heal our blind spots. Life should expose and heal your blind spot. Those that went before us, our families, our forefathers and mothers, our spiritual fathers and mothers, took the story as far as they could, and we should be so thankful that they did, but they also gave us their blindnesses. They also gave us their blind spots. The reality of it is, when they took the story as far as they could, they gave us an incredible inheritance that we were able to stand on their shoulders and go higher and further than deep and deeper. However, we only are able to see what they could see if we inherited their shoes. If you're raised in a racist household, chances are you inherit that way of seeing. It's just the way it is, guys. And and this isn't a slight to any parent. This is just the way it is. So it's the job of every one of us to allow God to see my way of seeing, to heal me. And the way he does that is by using the things around us So, you know what healed the way I thought about gay people? Being with gay people. You know what healed the blind spot that I had about Muslims? Being with Muslims. You know what healed the blind spot that I had about poor people? Being with poor people. But you can only see what you can see when you can see it. And so the idea here is that God is always trying to heal our blindness. But if, see, the challenge is I was given a framework, or I had a framework, I had a framework that said that the way that God heals your blind spots is by being on your face in intercession. That is the foundation. That's the springboard. But the way he heals your blind spots is life. He heals your blind spots not in being on your face. He heals your blind spots in taking what he's doing in his goodness while you're on your face and walking it out into the world with people who are different than you and need what you found on your face. That's how he does it. So he impacts the people who are in need by you being able to take what you have found and give to those who are in need. And in that way, our blindness gets healed. We have a different way of seeing. He uses dirt. Chances are, if you don't get messy, you won't get healed. This is why it's so necessary for us to begin with or 
order with how we were raised, with value and giving thanks for the theological and religious and cultural frameworks that we were handed and be thankful for that order, but then move into disorder. There is a, a, a shaking that happens. And if you believe what the New Testament says, the shaking begins first where? So then we move into reorder where God shows us. And you know what's going to happen? I'm going to hand the next generation hopefully something better and bigger and more expansive than I inherited. But I'm also going to hand them my blind spot. And so they're going to have to shake things up, so to speak. And I can already see and feel and hear this. It's easier for Noah's generation and Grace's generation and um, uh, that next generation of kids to walk in inclusion with what they know. They don't have to break out of the box to get into inclusion. They just naturally are inclusive. That's just the way it is. But, but there is this thing that I hopefully believe that we can fight and bring into all of this. Why? Because God is always evolving and expanding and opening the tables so Jesus shows us how desirous God is of our healing, but then the last one is gratuitous healing. I love that phrase, gratuitous healing. God woke me up, well, I woke up at 2 o'clock this morning and God was talking, and that's what I heard, gratuitous healing. You know why I think it's gratuitous healing? Because the thing we miss in the midst of that story is that the man never asked to be healed. This is absolute radical grace. The religious system and its gatekeepers are usually more worried about following the rules to retain their control than they are healing people. So they're over here debating the rules so that they can keep their control of who's out and who's in and what's right and what's wrong. And Jesus is worried about healing a person that didn't even think they were worthy to ask to be healed. Because the man had bought into the system of the religious leaders that said that he was that way because God wanted it that way. He bought the lie. God steps into our lives. Did you hear that? God steps into your lies you tell yourself so that you can be healed. And he does so so preemptively that he doesn't wait for you to realize it's a lie he's stepping into. Did you hear that? God doesn't wait for us to realize we've been telling ourselves a lie before he gives us truth. That's how good he is. That's how good God is. So what happens is Jesus demonstrates this and notice that there was no requirement for the man. He didn't have to pray a prayer. Jesus didn't ask him if he had enough faith. He didn't ask if he's committed to anything. Nothing happened. Jesus just said, this man can't see, and I want him to see. It's that simple. The neighbors, and I use that term loosely if you read the rest of the story, questioned whether this healed man was in fact the same man. If you read the rest of the story, he goes back home, and the parents' neighbors, they all are like, 
that was Louis. Well, who is this guy? You can tell how much attention they were paying him. Sometimes people's challenges or illnesses cause us to so overlook them. We don't even see them as real. We don't recognize them. And then it causes them, in which the glory of Moses that Jesus is telling about, telling the Pharisees, but then the rest of the story we don't have time for, is that they, they hunt Jesus down. This, this man, blind man then goes to the temple to worship God, and they all get ticked off at the teacher. All the religious elites are now mad at the man for being a fool. Why? Because he just messed up their theology. So what I think is fascinating in the story, they say, is it possible? How could this have happened? And you know what the man says? I don't know if it's heresy or not. I don't know if this man is of the devil or not. All I know is I once was blind, and now I see. and they really miss at this point. And he looks at them and says, you realize that you're the ones who are blind. You're the ones. Why? Because they have remained propped up, their blind spots that they have been given, rather than moving into healing and life and freedom. That's where God is. If you ever want to find God, you will not find him over here in the Louvre. Who has been oppressed by the Romans? You will find him in the fringes where the people have been living with the boot of the rules on their neck. That's where you'll find God. And so Jesus says, I will be what I will be. And I will be that to whomever is hurting. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.